What's up, guys? I, uh, this feels like a friendly, good place to be in tonight. Uh, very thankful for you guys being here. Thankful for your time. Thankful for your hearts, your commitment, your faith. Uh, tonight, I want to begin um, by asking how many of you over the past few weeks have been, like, inappropriately into the Olympics? How many of you guys, like... Couple, couple silent fingers raised up by the uh, by the curlers. Um, so, quick quick survey of things. What what are some of your favorite events that you've seen so far? Skeleton curling, yes. Ice skating, hockey, many many good things. Many good things. Um, so somebody tell me this. Somebody tell me this. So what's, what's it called again when you're doing the, um, like the cross-country skiing and then you stop and shoot things every once in a while? Yes, biathlon. Uh, so I, I mean, I, I've been enjoying the Olympics, but I, I got like hooked to the TV last week watching this sport and wondering, how is this thing an Olympic sport? If you did this with a car, it would be illegal. Come on. How did this happen? Um, and I, we probably got some, some dudes up in here who probably could be okay with that. Um, but uh, it looks like it was from a James Bond movie. I don't know. Either way, the Winter Olympics um, have me fixed on just uh, what it means to achieve great things, do great things. Uh, I don't know about you, but my favorite part of watching the games is watching the special cutaway backstories that they show. Uh, some of the athletes and how they got there, their families, their other life. Uh, outside of uh, biathleting or whatever they do. Um, so uh, one formula to me is pretty constant. Uh, there's a story that, that plays out that equals how somebody gets to the Olympics. And it plays out something like this. They get into the sport at an early age. So my son, Reed, uh, our, our oldest one, we have another one that will come here in a couple weeks. Uh, Reed is two years old. And so he's probably already like late in the game. Uh, compared to some of these guys, you know, he would have, they would have been on ski, uh, on skates, uh, like, you know, six months uh, before they were born. Um, but so they get into the sport at an early age. Their parents then mortgage their house like five times and they move across the country, move across the world to put their kids, especially in the Winter Olympics when you need to be around snow, uh, to put your kids through something that, to pay the cost, to allow them to uh, be involved in the sport and all that takes. Uh, all the costs that tolls. And then beyond that, they, um, they get exposure at like low-level events. They get some success. They build it. They go on. Maybe even end up at some kind of a big like Pan Am Games or, you know, World Cup kind of thing. Do well. Make the Olympic team. Get to Sochi. And finish fill in the blank, depending on who you're talking to. And that's really inspiring. I mean, I love, I love seeing the stories of how people make it, you know. But, but here's the deal as I was looking at that. As awesome as all the stories are, all the backstories, that really isn't a good story. I don't know if, there's, if anybody else kind of picks up on this, but as I'm looking at all of these stories about how these guys get there, if they ask the medalists in the interview afterwards, man, how did you get here? It's always basically that story. So it's kind of predictable. If you have enough money, if you have the time, if you have the commitment, and of course probably genetics plays a part in there somewhere, you get to that spot. And... Um, a good story always involves the character or characters uh, having a goal in mind, having somewhere to go. You, you see where they're going to end up. Um, but there's this huge obstacle, a huge conflict that gets in the way. 
And when the conflict comes, they have a, they have a decision. Are they going to, um, you know, bail and run away, or are they going to stay and fight? And even though some of the stories in the Olympics portray bits and pieces of that, we don't see anything in the Olympics even close to what the story of Scripture gives. Um, this great, amazing narrative, this huge, epic story that shows uh, what God is doing through plain, ordinary, no special kind of guys like Moses. Now, I don't know about you, but over the past few weeks, I've already begun wrestling with the question, why Moses? Uh, it's a good question, but we're going to see more and more tonight uh, why the Lord even chose to work through a man like this. Beyond this, I think that all of us at the end of the night are going to be able to look up and together celebrate the fact that the gospel um, is and always will be the good news that God didn't wait for his people to come to him. God pursued his people exactly where they were. He met them where they were, and he walks with them on the journey. And so open your Bibles to Exodus 4. We're going to get into a great, uh, perplexing at times, uh, just call it weird at times passage, but uh, a really good one nonetheless. So Exodus 4. You guys have been in Exodus for a couple weeks with us. We've um, done the whole thing where Israel has been in slavery in Egypt. They've been there for 400 years and uh, their groaning went up to God. God knew that he was going to act. So God appears to Moses in a burning bush at Mount Sinai. God, Moses then, you know, as God reveals who he is, what he's doing, his name, he says, I'm going to use you to lead these people out of Egypt. Uh, Moses uh, has this, you know, the, the preliminary details are set. And so this is where this story picks up. Moses then leaves that encounter with God. And here we go. Verse 18 in chapter 4. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Um, I appreciate the chivalry or the respect that Moses gives here. I mean, Moses at this point in time is 80 years old, which only leaves it to the imagination to figure out how old Jethro is. Uh, Usually you're kind of out of the permission asking stage in like your teens to early 20s, depending on where you're at in life and how mature you are. Some of you guys, you're 38 and you're still asking for permission. That's, that's okay in some ways, I guess. Moses is 80 and he's still asking for permission from his father-in-law, saying basically, hey, can I go? And um, what he says is really interesting. I have a lot of questions tonight I'm going to throw out as we go through this text. Uh, when it comes to Scripture, I don't think there's a bad question. I think if we're asking questions, that's evidence that we're wrestling through it. That's evidence that we're, you know, we're trying to get to what's there. And so I'm going to ask a lot of questions and throw them out there as we go along. The first question I have is, why did Moses lie to Jethro? Why did Moses lie to Jethro? God told him, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you back to Egypt to do all these signs, say all these things through your brother Aaron to Pharaoh. He's not going to let my people go. I'm going to bring some stuff down. You're going to lead my people out of Egypt. But what does he ask Jethro? He says, hey, uh, can I go back to my brothers in Egypt to see if they're still alive? Part of me at this time is wondering if Moses um, even fully believes in what he's doing. It's kind of like when, if you've ever asked your parents um, or anybody who you have to ask permission for, you know, can I, you don't say, hey, can I go to this crazy sketchy party with some, you know, random, you know, guys I shouldn't be around and girls I shouldn't be around and, you know, we probably won't come home until 4 or 5 a.m., but, you know, you probably don't ask that. You say something like, hey, mom, hey, dad, uh, I'm going to go um, 
if it's okay with you, read my Bible at Steak and Shake for like six hours. How does that sound, you know? <laughs> you kind of fudge it over a little bit, right? Um, in part because you know they're not going to agree with it. In part because at a minimum, they're going to think you're crazy, right? Are you crazy for asking me that? Come on. Uh, maybe Moses is afraid a little bit um, in light of that. And, and first thing I want to say is that if, if the Lord uh, tells you to do something in his word, in prayer, you don't need to be ashamed of what it is. No task is too small or too big. No person is too small to be used by the Lord. So it's unbelievable what he calls us to do. Moses does not start off on a good foot in my book. But the story keeps going. In verse 19, and the Lord said to Moses, In Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Uh, Next question I have is, does God have to wait to act until now? Is God at the mercy of, you know, getting the old Egyptian pharaoh and his regime out of there before he can come back? Um, I think a better question to even add to that is, is, was this God's grace at a good time for Moses? I mean, God is going to even allude to in this passage that he is sovereign, equal uh, by no other. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, maker of all things, can do whatever he wants. So why does he wait till a time when it's better for Moses to do this thing? Not everything is like that in our lives. Sometimes you're called to do something that is unbelievably hard, you know, that's impossible, literally impossible to do. But sometimes God gives you opportunities in your life when he knows that it's better for you, when he knows that it's, it's ripe. So it causes me to, to, to step back and to ask you to wrestle together with what relationships, what people, what tasks, what opportunities are ripe for the picking right now. And God could have done anything uh, at any time as much as he wanted to, but he's given you situations on a silver platter right now saying, take, it's time to go back. It's time to get involved in that. It's time to go talk to them. You see, at an early stage here, uh, God giving grace to Moses. And then he says, uh, it says here in verse 20, so Moses took his wife and his sons, whose names, by the way, are Zipporah is his wife. No Zipporah is in here, by the way. I don't, we didn't have any in the first service, so I didn't know if, you know, second service would produce some of those. Um, So Zipporah is his wife, and his sons are uh, Gershon and Eleazar. Not exactly the most popular baby names of 2013, I'll say that. We know this. We've been wrestling with this baby name thing for a while. But he takes his wife and his sons, in verse 20, and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. They're not exactly on the Cadillac of excursions right now, okay? Um, This whole land is dominated by desert, by rough terrain. And so Moses packs... The wife and the kids jumps on a donkey and heads out. Um, Here's a question that I have to wrestle with in this. When have you put your stuff, fill in the blank, valuable to you, whatever's valuable, whoever's valuable to you, when have you put your stuff on the donkey? I, at this point, personally am not convinced that Moses is, is like sold out completely, no doubts in this mission whatsoever. But... Even though he's lying to his father-in-law about why he's going, he still risks something by putting his wife and his kids on the donkey and says, okay, we're going to Egypt. I don't even know how much they even believe in this. But I I think we wait, we sit back so much 
waiting for all the stars to align, waiting for God to send us the business plan and the backup plan and the guarantee to the backup plan saying, this is exactly how this is going to work out. This is what I want you to do. So then it, it should just be super easy. Take these steps. And here in this situation, God has said, I'm going to do something, literally something that's unpos- impossible, and I'm going to do it through you, but you have to go to Egypt. So many times um, our faith is strong enough that it leads us to do things, to go to Egypt. And sometimes you just have to start walking to Egypt in order for your faith to grow along the way. I think both, of us are, uh, both sides are, are things that we're messing with, that we're dealing with, that we're wrestling with. When have you put your stuff on the line for the sake of what God was calling you to do? We don't have faith in things often because literally if, if we stopped being a Christian, it wouldn't change anything in our life except for what we did on Wednesday and Sunday. We have to put our stuff back on the line for the sake of what God calls us to do and who he calls us to be. And in that place, our faith will grow. In verse 21, it continues, says, And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. I will stop there. Um, Okay, crazy. Moses before, in the previous passages, has been told by God that he is going to go to Egypt to do all these signs before the people of Israel. Now, it's one thing to go back to your people. Like, I'm going to go back to my people. I'm going to have some awesome signs. I have a staff that I can turn into a snake and... My hand gets all nasty, and then it gets better again, and, you know, the, I can turn the river into blood, and it's crazy. They're totally going to believe me, you know. It's a whole other thing altogether for God to say, you're going to go actually not just talk to your people, you're going to go talk to Pharaoh. You're going to put yourself in front of the most powerful man in Egypt, the man that they saw to be king, the man that the Egyptians believed was their God's incarnate as a man. You're going to go stand in front of the most powerful person or thing in their entire culture, and you're going to do these things. If I was Moses, I probably would be shaking in my sandals a little bit. But then he says this, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. If I had a top five or a top ten of, of like theological bait that causes people to fight over something, this would be one of those things. And a question, going back to the questions that we've been raising, is, um, is this fair to Pharaoh? Is it fair to Pharaoh that God says, I'm going to put this out there. You're going to do this, but I'm going to harden his heart so he doesn't do it. You wrestle with this a lot. People bring this up all the time. And here's one thing I think that we have to figure out and and grow in as we mature together, as we grow as believers, as we interact with God's word, is we've gotten too good at asking questions that are super philosophical, that that's not bad by itself, but... It's disconnected. You know, we, we ask questions like we have nothing to do with the story. We ask questions like we're 3,000 years later in a totally different people reading just a really good story about some other people somewhere and how God worked in some way. I think it's actually unfaithful to try to read the Bible in an unbiased way. As Gentiles, most of us in this room, I don't think there are probably too many Jews, as Gentiles in this room have been grafted into God's people thousands of years later, We have inherited this story. We have inherited a side to be on. We've inherited a team to root for, and that's God's people. It doesn't mean we're rooting against God's people, but here's what it does when questions like this come up. God says he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And to the Egyptians, the heart was the control center of a person. If you have somebody's heart, 
under control, you have them under control. Um, so instead of us asking, is that fair to Pharaoh? I mean, it's kind of like us asking, hey, is it fair that bin Laden got all this bad press? You know, it's kind of a thing. Um, another question we could ask on top of that is, why does God want Moses to know this ahead of time? This isn't the actual thing happening just yet. I'm, I'm leaving most of the harden, hardness of heart thing uh, to be so that Mark can teach that um, a couple weeks from now. But why does God want Moses to know this ahead of time? It's like so many times in the Gospels when Jesus says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be led to, to Jerusalem. I'm going to die on a cross. I'm going to raise three days later. And he says that ahead of time so that his disciples would believe when they see it. I'm, I'm putting my chips on the table. Not saying Jesus was a gambler, but I'm putting my chips on the table, right? So that when this happens, some of you guys just got really excited that I said Jesus may have been a gambler, which I didn't say. But, um, but these, these things are said. God throws out this, these statements like this where he says, I'm going to do something unbelievably impossible. And then when Moses sees it happen, what do you think that did for his faith? When he's literally saw that like, there should be every reason for Pharaoh to want to let these people go, but for some reason he's not. And then he would believe in a deeper way. God must know what he's talking about. Final question I have on this verse is, who is in control? If there's anything that we pull away from the hardness of Pharaoh's heart kind of thing, away from, you know, is this fair, you know, trying to sympathize for Pharaoh, I think the real question the Israelites would have been wrestling with as they read this, as they read these stories to themselves is, our God is control uh, is in control. Is there anybody that is not in control more than God is in control? It's unbelievable to know that that is the God, not just the God that they're learning about and the God they're worshiping, it's their God. The God of all things, the God who can control anything is their God. It's a huge identity thing. And then verse 22, as it goes on, it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Moses shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. How many of them do you think, by the way, doubted that at this point? Moses is going in, Israelites complaining for 400 years, hearing these stories passed down from their grandfathers about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they're slaves in Egypt. You have to believe this. Israel is my firstborn son. In verse 23, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Okay, crazy. Of course, it sounds crazy. This whole passage, the first time I read it, I was like, oh boy. This is, you know, God saying he's going to kill sons. That's, that's crazy. That never sounds good. Is this too harsh on God's part? Is it too harsh for him to, to tell Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron, if you don't let my son go, I'm going to kill yours? It hit me a couple days ago looking at this passage that I think if, if this was going to be, you know, translated into like modern slang and borrowed from a, you know, terribly cheesy movie, I think God would be saying something like this. Um, if you don't let my kid go, that's my kid. If you don't let him go, I'm going to kill yours. And by the way, get your dirty hands off my kid. To quote Charlton Heston from Planet of the Apes. <laughs> now, now, it, now it made a little more sense. Get your hands off my kid. I mean, th this is the God of the Old Testament. Same thing as the God of the New Testament. 
showing his grace that is completely undeserved. What did Israel ever do to be God's kid? Nothing. God came to Abraham, said through your family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And how many people in Israel's audience, how many, how many people today, how, how many of us would wrestle with that? God, God, God doesn't come back like that. He doesn't care about me. 400 years we've been in Egypt. How many years that I've struggled with this one thing? Or how many years has it been since that one person, my mom, my dad, my friend, my whoever, wronged me and hurt me in that way? Many, many, many of us need to know tonight that God is a relentless father who comes back to protect his kids. And he beats up whoever enslaves them. So, Verse 24, he keeps going. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Okay. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Okay. I literally, I, I think, I mean, let's, let's call it what it is. This is weird. I mean, first time I read this, looking at this week, I, I literally, I, I, I read it, and I just kind of stared at it. And I, was, I kept breathing, hoping that something would just jump out at me, and I was, this is crazy. I mean, this is unbelievable. All right, so we have a crazy thing happening here. It doesn't even look like it fits here, but I promise you that it does. Here's what's happening. On their way down, Moses his wife, their sons, they're on their way to Egypt. And it says that uh, the Lord met, met him and sought to put him to death. First question here is, who is the him? If you read on, the ESV inserts the name Moses in there. But it also, if you have an ESV, the note by Moses' name in verse 25 says, or him by it. The problem is in this, there's no names actually listed in here. It's, it's all masculine pronouns. The Lord uh, met, uh, sought to put him to death. The choice, number one, is Moses. The ESV Bible goes that way. There's good reasons for that. Here's another option, though. Um, Moses, uh, we know from the story that, that Zipporah, the wife, the mom, took a flint, and I pray to God she knew what she was doing, and circumcised her son on the spot, which meant that, what? Her son wasn't circumcised. Wait a minute, wait a minute. So, Way back in Genesis 17, God makes this covenant with Abraham. Says that I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. All the nations of the earth will come from you. I'm going to gather a people from your family that will be innumerable, more than the stars in the sky. And here's the sign of this covenant union, this bond that we have. Circumcise your males on the eighth day. Women kind of got off easy on that one, okay? Circumcise your men on the eighth day. Okay. So if the son is being circumcised, uh, poor Gershom, by the way, probably, I mean, he's not eight days old. Moses is 80, okay? So you do the math. It's not pretty. We'll just say that. Zipporah takes the flint, and uh, that poor boy, I just keep feeling bad for that kid, by the way. You know, there's so many things that you come back at, you know, looking at this passage. She takes the flint, she circumcises him, and then she wipes the blood on his feet uh, and, and says, surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. Another word for bridegroom in this verse is relative. You're a blood relative to me now. 
So this crazy thing is happening. Let me tell you what I think is happening here. They go along the way. God, I don't know if the family stopped to have a family bathroom break of the river or what, but God somehow realizes that Gershom is not circumcised. God um, somehow communicates. He has to have communicated because Zipporah knew that there was something that could be done about it. God somehow communicates that he's angry, he's wrathful, he's vengeful about this. And there, some here, somewhere in here, whether it's a millisecond or minutes or whatever, there's, there's space in which there's an opportunity to change the situation. Moses should have been on the ball when the kid was eight days old. He dropped the ball. And who steps in to save the day? His wife. It's not a situation that's foreign to us in this culture. We've seen men time and time again try hard to be the man, right, to be the guy who provides, who steps up, who steps in the gap, and more times than not has dropped the ball. And in this passage, one question I would have wrestling with this is, is, was Zipporah being an Ephesians 5 submissive wife? Half the room just tensed up. Men, by the way, that half. Um, You know, in Ephesians 5 it says, you know, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands love your wives. The thing is, right before that, the context is that it's within a church where everybody is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Yes, there's absolutely biblical headship in marriage, and we, we, we affirm that and celebrate that at Matthias. It's the way God decided to do things. But in this moment, is Zipporah being submissive? I say yes because she's being submissive to God. And she's stepping in and realizing that when there's a moment to do something, Moses the second time doesn't step up, she does. Now, on behalf of all men in the room, I want to apologize for the male side of our species and all the ways that we've dropped the ball, but thank you, ladies, wives, mothers, in the ways that you stepped up when we haven't, in the ways that you've been faithful when we haven't. It's never supposed to be that way. You're supposed to be partners together, right? But praise God for women who step up and step in the gap just like Zipporah does. Okay, so another question is, what does, um, does, does Zipporah change God's mind here? It's a big question. It's a question I know some discipling relationships are wrestling with here uh, in the room, and it's a huge question. It's not my kind of question, but it's a big one. Now, what we can say uh, safely, at least from this passage, you should never build a doctrine off of one passage, by the way, but what we can say safely from this passage Beyond anybody's mind being changed, which is kind of above my pay grade, I mean, we, I mean, how, how do we even know that that's happening? We can safely say this, um, that God's hatred and his wrath is against covenant unfaithfulness. And, praise God, this is almost the gospel in Exodus 4, God's wrath is satisfied by faith. Support his faith here. Albeit that poor, not so young boy. Okay, so there we did. We, uh, we handled the circumcision passage, blood, and all. I pulled the Google images off uh, out of the first service, so you were saved from that, I promise. Okay, as the story goes on, verse 27. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. All right, so God is not just God who's talking to Moses. Somehow God is, is intervening with Moses and his family, but he's also with Aaron. He's in more places than once, a wonderful, omnipresent God. So he went and met him at the mountain of God, back at Mount Sinai, which shows you that Moses and his family, after he went back to Midian, they didn't get too far yet. 
He met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. I wonder what this, I wonder what this meeting would look like. Moses and Aaron probably haven't seen each other for decades at least. His brother. God tells him, come out, meet him. Aaron goes out, meets his brother, long lost brother. And in verse 28, Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Can you imagine what this conversation would have been like? Brother, it's good to see you. It is very good to see you. You know, let's, let's go sit down on these rocks and let's talk. You know, so we, we go over, sit down. And Aaron is like, uh, something, you know, I think it was the Lord told me to come out and meet you. And, and Moses says, I know I've been gone for a long time, but let me tell you what just happened. Uh, God showed up to me in a burning bush, stuttering probably as he said it, right? And he showed me these signs. These signs are impossible. This, it doesn't even make sense that this can happen, but I saw it with my own eyes. And he gave me these signs and he gave me these words to say before Pharaoh and in front of the people, this is what we're called to do. It will be an amazing meetup. And then in verse 29, then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. I picture this to be the grandpas of Israel. You know, for me, for some reason in my mind, every Israelite looks like he's 85, but I know that's not the case. Uh, the, the elders would have been, you know, the, the, the old men, the wise old sages. I picture these guys sitting around with kids around them like on a, on a weekly basis, coming back from your hard day's work somehow that the elders are able to survive through. Um, you know, sitting down around a campfire and, you know, putting their grandkid on their knee and saying, grandson, granddaughter, listen to this. Let me tell you a story about the God of our forefathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And over 400 years, generation after generation after generation, I can only begin to imagine how much those grandchildren believe less and less and less. You know, one generation in, that, 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 that's awesome, Grandpa. Two generations in, that's, that's pretty cool, you know, for, for you, I guess, you know. Three generations in, Grandpa, you don't know what you're talking about. That's just a fairy tale. And then it gets down the line 400 years later when the elders come out, probably lost hope in hope itself, even starting to doubt in so many ways the things that they have been uh, saying and repeating, believing about this God of their forefathers that that they haven't seen in so long. And they see Moses and Aaron. Can you imagine how wide these old men's eyes would have gotten seeing these things? There's no way that they could be doing these things. There's no way that they could even be saying these things. This must be our God. And in verse 30, it says, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. It's been a crazy journey. You know, it's been a crazy journey so far. Moses lies to Jethro. Moses puts his family on the donkey. He, he puts them on the table for the sake of what God is calling him to do. He gets so far, he gets this place. He's, he's right there. They, they share the signs. They do all this stuff. But it says, Aaron spoke all the words and also did the signs. My question is, why isn't Moses doing the signs? If you are here last week, after God showed Moses the signs, and after Moses gave excuse after excuse as to why he wasn't the right guy, which is kind of the point in my mind. And then God says, well, your brother Aaron will speak the words, but you shall do the signs. 
And there's nothing in this verse that convinces me whatsoever that Moses was actually the one doing it. Aaron is the only subject in the sentence that the pronouns belong to. Uh, thank you, every literature geek who is you know, impressed by that like me. The um, Moses should be stepping up to the plate here. And picture this. They, they, you know, Aaron and Moses come down before the elders. You know, Aaron is, is, is saying all these things. The people have gathered. They start filling in the seats more. As Aaron is proclaiming things and he finishes, then he looks over to Moses. And he's like, go ahead. All right, it's your turn. And I imagine Moses looking at the staff and then taking a step up and saying, you do it. This is the guy. I mean, I'm still wrestling in my heart even in this moment. Why Moses? Why does God go outside of the land to somebody who has ran away? He's in shepherd retirement, making sweet wool sweaters probably, completely disconnected from his past life. I'm sure when Zipporah at the time would ask him, man, t- tell me about this, tell me about your people. And he's like, oh, it's that Israelite thing that's covenant. God, all that, it's, that's, that's in the past. I'm here now. God, for some reason in his power, decided to choose a man like Moses through which to do these amazing things. And I'm only convinced that it's, that at the end of the day, to me, I've only seen one reason that stands, is that God is doing something through an impossible, he's doing impossible things through a random, improbable person in order that when these things are done, nobody would be able to say, look at how awesome Moses is. Nobody would be able to say, look at what Moses is capable of. He's the guy who stutters, right? He's the guy who has lied to half the people. Now, it's easy to get discouraged by this. Here's where he is. And for a lot of you in the room, guys especially, you wrestle with this. In the midst of your failures, in the midst of times when you want to add up and you know you should add up, you know you should step up and come through and you don't, it's easy to rest in that in failure. And I'm sure Moses probably at times was, was hit with that. Who am I? What, I cannot do this. I can't even get this right. I'm too afraid to even do the signs. I think we have to anchor it back into something. We know where he came from. We know Moses came from this crazy backstory. You know, in a basket of reeds down the river, raised up in Pharaoh's household, kills an Egyptian, right? Kills somebody and then flees. His last note in Israel was not a high one, right? It was a terrible episode. So we know where he came from. I want to give you a clue into where he goes. Um, Next slide. Deuteronomy 34. This is the last episode. This is the very last thing ever written about Moses' own life uh, within the narrative. It says this. And the Lord said to him, said to Moses, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God has taken Moses up to the side of Mount Nebo for reasons that we can get into later. He's not able to go in. But God said, I'm going to take you up and show you, but you can't go in. So he takes him up to the mountain. Uh, And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, what an awesome nickname, by the way, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, God himself, think about even what this looked like in your mind. God himself, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. 
Think about this being written in your obituary. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. And I hope that you see this. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Okay, so how do you get from here? Crazy backstory. Can't even explain it. Too dramatic to even comprehend. To hear. No one has been in Israel like Moses. Knowing the Lord face to face. I think on a daily basis, in the midst of his doubt, his struggle, trying to figure out how all this was going to happen through somebody like him, trying to, trying to even wrestle on his own. Why did God choose me to do this thing? Why, why, why me in all the good ways? I think he would have wrestled with something like this. Next slide. He would have prayed this, God, I'm not who I was, but I'm not yet who I will be. Help me to know and serve you more today. Help me today. The reality is, is the past is over. You cannot do anything to change it. And the future is dependent upon where you, where you go today. I am absolutely firmly convinced that men and women of faith who end up dying a faithful death or living some epic faithful story in the end get there by way of the smallest, tiniest acts of faith along the way. So, when there's an opportunity to put your family on the donkey, you put your family on the donkey. When you look at the staff in your hand, then you step up. Not believing in who you are. Moses would be crazy if he believed in who he was, but believing in what God can do through him because God was with him. Verse 31, as this ends out, it says, and the people believed. Can you imagine the atmosphere around Israel, the Israelites right now? Hundreds of thousands of people all of a sudden in unison believing that the God of their forefathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was actually real. And he came back. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. It's amazing because God didn't wait for Israel to clean themselves up. He didn't wait until Israel didn't struggle so much. God entered back in chapter 2 into Israel's story when they were groaning the loudest, which tells me that their situation was as worse as it could be. This atmosphere would be a celebration. They bowed their heads in unison, and they worshiped. Now, here's the deal. Um, If the Lord came, if we were in these people in that time, you know, rewind 3,000 years, and we are in that congregation of people, and everybody's bowing their heads and worshiping, celebrating, that God had come, no matter what their doubts were, no matter how much they mistook everything, no matter how much they sinned, no matter how much they struggled, God came. 
Think about how crazy and sad it would be if you were off in the corner punishing yourself and whipping yourself in the back because you didn't get it right yet. Friends, when God comes to his people, there's no room for being on the outside. No one should be on the outside. Everybody, it doesn't matter how great your struggle is, you're a part of the people, and God has come back. The good news is not that they clean themselves up to God. The good news is that God came back to a dirty people in order to make them clean for the sake of his redemptive plan. In Philippians 1.6, the Apostle Paul says, I am sure of this, I am convinced of this to this church in Philippi, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It's not you, church in Philippi. It's not your own effort. It's not your own doing. It's God who's going to work in you. He's going to see you to the end. This is a celebration. There's no time for condemnation in all the ways that, all the ways that you haven't added up, all the ways that you've doubted, all the ways that you've made mistakes along the way. The journey is imperfect, but God is with us. So tonight we're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate what it means that God came to be with us, that in John 1, as it says, the word came and, and, and dwelt among us. The word became flesh to be one of us in Jesus. A little over a thousand years after Moses, a prophet did arise in Israel who was greater than Moses. And Jesus, at the end of his ministry, heading into the final night, he gathered his disciples, his boys, sitting around in the room, even though in that very night, Many of them have doubted and some would betray him. They would all run for the hills at some point. Knowing all that, he sat down with them. And he turned around and he said, I've greatly desired to share this Passover meal with you, celebrating the ultimate exodus from slavery. He held up the bread. I wonder what Jesus would have thought as he looked at the bread when he said, this is my body, broken for you, given for you thinking about his own body that he would allow to be broken by sin and death in order that he can raise up three days later to overpower it. This is my body that was broken for you. And then he turned around and he, as he lifted the cup, I, I try to even begin to think about what Jesus was thinking when he was looking at the, at the wine when he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Poured out for the sins of many. Friends, if, if the blood of Christ covers you, then there's no more time for condemnation. No more time for guilt. There's no more time to be off on the side when the party's happening together with the people of God. So tonight we're going to celebrate, and this is a celebration, this ancient rite. As we come up, as you come up to the tables in the corner, as you take the bread off, tear it off and dip it in the cup, as you see other people walking up there, have a heart of celebration knowing that God didn't leave you on the side. He brought you in. He's come to us. He's visited us not because of anything that we did to deserve it, but because of his good grace and love and mercy. The church, this is a meal for believers. Let's celebrate together.